Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is my friend Kelly Shortridge. She's the VP of Products at Capsulate, but her knowledge of the information security world goes far beyond that role. Kelly's here to talk with us today about behavioral economics as it relates to information security. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us here at The Ranch. Thank you so much for having me. First, a brief word from our sponsor. You're in charge of cybersecurity at your company, but do you really know what's going on with your security controls? Are they actually working to keep you safe? The problem is when controls fail, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, real security outcomes. That's Attack IQ. Check it out at attackiq.com. And thank you, Attack IQ, for sponsoring this show. Let's kick this show off by getting to know Kelly a little bit better. Kelly, can you tell us a little more about who you are and what you do at your day job? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I do product stuff at a security vendor. Mostly that involves figuring out what the market needs, what are the upcoming market trends, trying to make sure we're prioritizing the right features and talking about it the right way. I think you and I have gotten to know each other kind of outside of my day job with a lot of the research I've done on the side, both into how to apply behavioral economics to information security, as well as kind of like how to create some sort of marriage between DevOps and security. Beautiful. So in your past, obviously not always a vendor. You've done other cyber jobs. Uh, You've been a practitioner. I understand you came into information security sort of through a, a different gate. You didn't grow up cyber, did you? I didn't. I mean, I grew up with a love of computers, but very much on the kind of like building my own gaming rig side. I actually started my career in information security through investment banking, doing M&A and private capital raises for information security companies, as well as some data analytics companies. But I fell in love with the technology side, which is what led me to leave behind at least some of the Excel spreadsheets and start focusing on InfoSec full-time. Fantastic. So conventional economic theory generally assumes that people are both rational and self-interested, and I would even go as far as to say self-ish, not just self-interested. How is behavioral economics different from this model, and what is it assuming about people? Yeah, so behavioral economics I love because if you just look at fundamentally economics as the study of choice. And it used to be, as you mentioned, like entirely theoretical, you know, this is how people would behave if they behave rationally. What behavioral economics says is quite simply, like, let's look at how people actually behave by conducting experiments and collecting experimental evidence in the wild. And what you see is that uh, humans behave very differently than kind of the rational models. And I actually agree with some economists, which is perhaps waiting a bit in the realm of philosophy, that quite a lot of what we actually deem irrational as far as behavior is actually very rational at a local level, given the context of the situation. And it really only seems irrational from our vantage point that's removed both like spatially and temporally. So something like if you were under a ton of pressure and you have 20 million competing priorities, like sometimes things are going to slip and the way you prioritize under pressure conditions is going to be different than what people maybe in, you know, a business school case study would say you should do. So I think there's been a lot of research in the past few years kind of looking into this notion of like local rationality and just again, the idea that in any complex system, you have like very specific contexts that you really can't ignore when you're evaluating decision making. So in general, though, behavioral economics is basically looking at like, what are all the quirks in our behavior that deviate from our kind of like ideal models of behavior? 
Interesting. So what are search heuristics in behavioral economics and, and how might those theories apply to InfoSec? Yes, we have super powerful brains. The problem is, you know, we generally have to make decisions quickly. And heuristics refers to all of the mental shortcuts that we take in our decision making. I like to think of it as basically we're bamboozling ourselves by simplifying the decision problem into something that can actually be addressed in a much more like bite-sized and quick way which makes sense from like an evolutionary perspective, right? Like we can't just be ruminating all the time. We'll go insane. Note that I also ruminate a lot. So, I mean, you know, we can debate my own sanity, but in general, the goal is that we're going to simplify things as much as possible. So one example of these heuristics is the concept of availability, not the CIA triad one. This one means basically like when making judgments, humans are relying on whatever information or examples come to mind most easily, because if we remember them quickly, then they must be important, right? So I think a morbid example is the difference between actual causes of death and the Google searches related to those causes. Probably some of your listeners have seen that infographic. It's like heart disease is the largest cause of death in the US, but it receives a fraction of the search traffic is like terrorism, despite the risk of dying from terrorism being relatively negligible. So the problem is that people can immediately recall specific examples of any sort of terrorist attack, but they probably can't think of specific examples of death by heart disease. So our perception of reality ultimately, and thus what drives our decision-making ends up being distorted. So in InfoSec, like I think the most obvious and best recent example is solar winds. So you know this very well, Alan, but I promise that anyone who's listening, you don't need to buy whatever like anti-supply chain backdoor tool that vendors are trying to push on you right now. So I noted on Twitter, like FireEye caught the activity related to the incident because of two-factor authentication when attackers tried to log in with a new device and the employee was like, nope, wasn't me. And so just because the upstream backdoor is super salient in our brains because we've read about it for the past few weeks, doesn't mean that's actually the risk worthy of the most concern or investment. But the availability heuristic says, yes, it is because we can think of it most quickly. Interesting. So we we gravitate towards preconceived notions is really what you're saying here, that that it doesn't matter what the objective reality is. We could we could filter out or embrace perhaps the wrong stimuli just based on based on ir- irrational foundations. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. And there's this concept of um, salience in behavioral economics, which is basically like how how much does our brain like want to devour the information? So that's why something like solar winds, it's not something you see every day, right? It's not really like the traditional kind of boring fishing. It's like cool and sexy. So it sticks out in our brains more because it's a little more anomalous. So it's it's kind of ironic that a lot of the like anomalous things we hear in the news, especially around InfoSec, is actually it basically drives the decision-making when we're making judgments, but it shouldn't because it is anomalous. It's not the stuff that happens every day, but it's just, it's kind of this weird quirk of human brains that you know, we tend to do that. And it makes sense, again, kind of if you think about most of human history, we haven't had to deal with kind of like the information society we live in now. It's just our brains haven't caught up yet. So it's not just about the heuristics, it's about cognitive effects, right? There's there's cause and effect here in behavioral economics as well. So so what does that look like? The cognitive effects piece in specific. I'm I'm assuming there's some sub theory or or controversial theory around that. Oh yeah, I mean there's I I certainly am not an expert in like neuroscience, but I know that there is more research trying to link together like behavioral economics and then neurological kind of correlates to those biases. But I think as far as cognitive effects, there's obviously like biases, kind of like the theories of why we actually do this stuff. Like, and what's the like evolutionary advantage? We could honestly talk about this all day, but I think one thing, again, most relevant 
kind of recently is something like hindsight bias. And hindsight bias is the whole like, I knew it all along effect. And I like to think it has a BFF, which is outcome bias, which leads us to negatively judge a decision if the outcome was bad, which is silly, right? Because for example, a surgery with a probability of like 50% working or not, will say that the surgery was too risky if it doesn't succeed. And then we'll say it was worthwhile if it does. Like that's irrational, right? But with solar winds, as another example, like you had hot takes like longer passwords should have been used, which I mean, first of all, it isn't relevant for like phishing attacks that wouldn't exactly stop a nation state. And also it's a classic example, hindsight bias in action, which is inevitable after any public incident. We see it all the time. Like people act like they could have done better and that solution was so obvious, et cetera, which frankly isn't helpful. This is actually why in the ebook on security chaos engineering I wrote with Aaron Reinhardt, there's a ton of emphasis on leveraging failure as a learning opportunity, which is not necessarily natural for our brains, but it's essentially mandatory. We have to implement this sort of like blameless culture because hindsight bias can easily poison our brains in essence into blaming like dumb or lazy users or developers or accountants and whomever else and completely miss all the commingling factors that contributed to the incident. Again, our brains are hardwired to basically be like, oh, there's this like bear or wolf or spider or whatever, like big singular threat. But that's not how our world works anymore. And you can't learn it from an incident if you're pointing fingers, full stop. So hindsight bias, among other things, is what tempts us to point fingers, which is just super unproductive. So I think my hot take is, and what's amazing about these cognitive effects is they overlap and kind of build on each other. So I think there's an element also here of like the just world hypothesis at play. Basically that an incident happening is evidence in itself of some obvious incompetence. Like if you were pwned, you deserve it. The reality is, and maybe this is a hot take within a hot take, a nation state who has identified your organization as a target is not an adversary you can ever hope to completely deter without incurring like a seriously poor ROI on your spending. So this is part of why I've stated for years and definitely doubled down on it in the security chaos engineering report, raising the cost of attack is the optimal strategy. I kind of like to think of it as like, you want to make the nation state hustle for their shell access in your systems, right? Like make them prove that you're worth it. I like to think of it almost like King Theoden energy, like before the Battle of Pelennorth Fields, like, yeah, we're probably going to die, but at least we can give them hell in the meantime. So I think that's kind of useful to think about the problem, right? Like, don't die, but prioritize recovering from the incident as quickly as possible versus trying to prevent it because you're never going to be able to prevent all incidents. So the point is like failure is inevitable. It's a fact of life. You can do a ton of things very right and still get compromised by a highly resourced and like highly motivated attacker. Problem is our brains are just so bad at measuring and thinking about probabilistic risk. So we have things like hindsight bias. We have things like prospect theory where we overweight small probabilities and underweight large ones. Like there's so many things our brains are trying to do to like trick us into blaming like a single obvious factor when something fails. But again, that's just not how the real world works. So the TLDR for your audience is like our brains are hardwired in ways that make InfoSec a lot more challenging. That's interesting. So really a lot of what you're describing is about the primal brain, right? It's about habitual instincts, even if you will, that were driven by and always have been driven by as a species. But I know there's also sort of more intellectual biases and fallacies that come into play as well. And the example I'm thinking of, and I, and I, I can't remember the name of it, I'm, I'm hoping you can, but the aircraft that were returning in World War II all shot up. Mm -hmm. The plane would land on the runway and they would see bullet holes all over the place. And their initial instinct was, let's put extra plating in all these places where the bullet holes are. 
And it's essentially, I guess, a survivor bias that they were mm-hmm. looking at it completely backwards. The planes that came home with bullet holes in them are the ones that made it. The planes that were shot up in the other places are the ones that didn't even come home in the first place. So the challenge was not putting the plating where the bullet holes were, but rather putting the plating where the bullet holes weren't. And am I getting the right term on that one? Is that a survivor bias? Yes, I think commonly referred to as survivorship bias. You're exactly right. Like people in general, I mean, I talk about this all the time, right? Like humans are just not necessarily great naturally at complex systems and thinking about them. And one of the key things in complex systems is you have like causes and effects, you have different flows and there are a bunch of interrelated factors. And so when humans see like, oh, the plane comes back and there are holes, like, oh, holes are bad. And they don't necessarily think about like the multiple stages of kind of like the scenario, they don't think about the entire context. Like it's not, it's not natural for our brains, which by the way, I call the primitive brain lizard brain. Cause I find, I find it a little more like endearing to think of it like just a cute little lizard that's, you know, just doing its best, but making a lot of messy decisions. So basically our lizard brains just focus on like the most obvious factors and tend to kind of ignore or dismiss or otherwise it's, it's just not really present in our minds when we're making decisions. So the counterpoint to the lizard brain is what I like to call the philosoraptor, which is for people who know the meme, good job. The idea is like we have this like the lizard brain that we have the velociraptor, like much more intelligent, like it plots, it thinks. And so portmanteau between velociraptor and philosophy, and that's what you should strive to do. You need to be aware of the ways that your lizard brain is trying to like bamboozle you into worse decision-making and try to help velociraptor come out more to make your decisions. So behavioral economic theory is obviously clocking all of this, is obviously the whole point of it is let's find these foibles, let's find these irrational moments, let's try to define them, categorize them, and and containerize them, so to speak, so that we're actually working with them and not against them. In other words, the lizard brain is there in everybody. Traditional economic theory is kind of assuming we're operating not based on our lizard brain. But here's a new theory saying we are based on a lizard brain, and let's dissect what that lizard brain looks like, and let's come up with I'm assuming models to, you know, work around it, work with it, work through it, but not ignore it, in other words. So I guess my question then really becomes sort of if this is where the theories are headed, if this is what behavioral economics is all about, then shouldn't we be optimistic about this? Like the fact that we're finally cluing into and recognizing the presence of the lizard brain, the way that it dominates what we're doing in our decision making processes, that this is something we should be optimistic about, yes? Yes and no. So I tend to be pretty pessimistic by nature. There definitely could be optimism. You know, we've seen fantastic success with like the use of defaults, for example, like 401k, like making it opt out rather than opt in uh, substantially improves like people's like savings rates and obviously participations in 401k programs and the use of defaults and other kind of like nudges has a pretty robust level of evidence in support of them. Obviously, there are like negative externalities and all sorts of effects. Like there's also plenty of research showing like you have to be really careful about designing your nudges so you don't encourage unintended behavior. But I think there's certainly, I think there's plenty to be optimistic about in theory. The problem is in practice, you can tell people like, hey, this is irrational, but let's say like the sunk cost fallacy, which is basically like just because you've invested in something or like bought tickets to a show, if you don't want to go to the show, once the time comes around, the fact that you spent money on it should be irrelevant. You should be doing whatever is most valuable to you in the moment. I'm still aware of this bias. It's still hard to fight against it. I don't know many people that like very easily overcome that bias. So just telling people about it isn't necessarily enough. I think we have to start incorporating what's known as choice architecture, basically guardrails, 
around decision-making that help encourage more optimal decision-making. So in InfoSec, I think there are a few ways that you could see defaults. There are a few ways that you could implement things like checklists. And in general, I think there's just so much opportunity around building better security UX, like trying to build in security by design, like making the secure way, the easy way, stuff like that. The issue is we've known about this for a while. So I I read a paper actually last weekend, basically talking about everything I've just said and how important it is to basically work with the way human brains actually work and not like blame users for being busy and having divided attention. But that's like 20 years ago and not much has really improved. So I, I tend to fall on the side of like, okay, there is potential, there is reason potentially to be optimistic, but just seems like people are pretty content with the status quo, which is a bias in itself. So I don't know. I I oscillate back and forth between how optimistic or pessimistic to be about the situation. It's interesting because we, to your point, we've always in security, I say always, for a long, long, long time now in the world of security, we've recognized that we have to make security the easy choice. We have to make it the transparent choice. We have to make it the default mode of existence and and not be an obstacle and get in the way. Like these things have, have been known for some time now. And what we're talking about here is an actual analysis and understanding of these these behavioral models. And this this makes me think of cognitive versus behavioral psychology. In other words, to your point, we can know these things, but knowing is not enough. Cognitive psychology says that simply, and I'm simplifying grossly an entire field and school of thought here, but the idea that you can solve these problems simply by mental wrangling, right? Yeah. Versus behavioral psychology says we're going to actually program behaviors. We're going to give you tasks. We're going to give you checklists. We're going to give you things to do throughout your day to begin modeling and changing behaviors to the place you need to get them. And obviously, that's a gross simplification. Cognitive behavioral is really the model, and it's kind of a blend of all of the above. Is behavioral economics caught up with behavioral psychology? Is it prescriptive? Are they actually telling us how to behave in the face of all this? Yeah, I would argue it's definitely prescriptive, and that's actually where some of the criticism comes in. And some people find it very like kind of like benevolent paternalism, basically saying like, oh, we know better than you how to guide your decision making, which I see those arguments. But I also think, I think as anyone probably who is a gym goer can attest, like sometimes it is good to have, for instance, an example of a methodology or prescriptive methodology out of behavioral economics, commitment devices, like your payment to the gym or writing down on a note, like I'm going to the gym at this time is much more likely to get you into the gym than obviously if it's like free or if you don't like set a specific date and time to actually go. And you probably really want to go to the gym. Health is important to you, but for whatever reason, lizard brain some days is just like, nope, I don't want to do this. And it's very difficult to actually, you know, get out and go do it. So I would argue that in some cases, what can perhaps be a little overreaching into free will or free choice or however you want to put it. But I think in a lot of cases, a lot of people, for example, with security, like we can expect people to be security experts. So why shouldn't we have like more secure defaults? Why shouldn't we, for example, like internally, especially a lot of the tech companies, like why shouldn't we be defaulting to things like collect the least amount of data possible? Because that means like you're making the easiest path. Just you don't have to secure that data because you're not collecting it. Right. So I think, It's definitely prescriptive. I think, unfortunately, InfoSec is kind of solidly behind the curve around embracing a lot of these, a lot of different domains, whether that's physical safety or healthcare, certainly aerospace and defense have for now a couple of decades been incorporating kind of the basic principle of like, let's design our systems and design our workflows in the way that humans actually behave. InfoSec's just behind the curve on it, to be honest, which is part of the reason why I feel like I'm always, you know, 
yelling like a old man yells at cloud. Like it's, it's old Kelly yelling at Twitter about all this stuff. That's fantastic to hear. And, and sad to hear at the same time. It's you're right. We're not doing this in InfoSec. We're not there yet. And, and in terms of benevolent paternalism, right? Okay. I get that, but I can see where the prescriptive behaviors, you know, the prescriptive approach can start with, the practitioners and leave the users out of it and still achieve great strides. In other words, we as practitioners can put on our big boy pants and big girl pants and say, <laughs> okay, all right, fine. Here's these theories. Here's what they show. Here's what we should be doing. And and we become the people who implement the 401k default, except of course, it's a security default. If we can do it as practitioners and embrace that and, and not recoil against it and not emphasize the benevolence over the paternalism, right? I, I think I think we could make great strides. And I would love to see what sort of resources are out there. Who has got the prescriptive components specific to InfoSec? Is it out there yet? Is it going to be you? Like, who's going to champion this and slide it across the finish line? I've done some of it, especially there's one of my favorite talks still that I've given was called Big Game Theory Hunting, basically how defenders can use attackers, lizard brains against them. There's still a lot more I want to talk about in that vein as well. There are only so many hours in the day. So I've definitely talked about it some. There's certainly some academic research that's delved into that. Again, there's kind of a multi-decade history of academics being like, yo, a lot of these password requirements just like do not understand the way users actually work. I mean, a bunch of just security advice in general has long been known to be existing in this like fantasy world where users can only focus on security. They have literally no other priorities or distractions. So I feel like it's out there. It's a matter, I think, of incentives. And right now, to be honest, I don't think many security programs and certainly like CISOs have much of an incentive to embrace this kind of choice architecture because I mean, there's this kind of like tacit collusion in some ways across the industry that like, oh, the problem's too difficult to measure. We'll never be able to figure out. Guess we can just, in essence, kind of do what we want, which again, gross simplification. But if everything had to be tied to like a direct tangible outcome, I bet you would we would be seeing a lot more implementation of this kind of choice architecture because you'd have to be able to like prove with like experimental evidence, like, yes, what we are doing actually works. But I think outside of a handful of organizations right now, our metrics are somewhat feeble and certainly rarely tied to like, how much are we actually like helping users in their workflows. And I don't mean like, how are we helping them do security? I mean, like, how are we helping their workflows? Because if you implement security and it keeps the users from doing their job, one, they're probably just going to bypass the security, but two, like that's a negative to the organization. But just again, we, we don't collect metrics like that right now. So I think it's, it's just difficult to prioritize in your own security program when that's not how you yourself are being measured. This is what I've always called meeting the user where they live, right? It's not just yes. it's not just a matter of making security transparent and invisible. It's got to ride along with what they were already doing in the first place. Their daily workflow and work stream are far more important to them than any amount of security I can possibly introduce. I can jump up and down and shout and wave my arms, and they're still going to default to their normal track that they live in. And my security better drop into that track neatly. Otherwise, there's going to be a conflict and a problem. I'm with you on that one completely. So let's switch topics a little bit. We're getting close to the end of the show, and I always love to ask guests. I already we already talked briefly about how you got into InfoSec, but what keeps you going in InfoSec? Why are you still in the game? Why are you still in InfoSec? As you're very well aware, and probably anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, I tend to be very like snarky and salty. So I'll, I'll keep with that theme and say mostly spite. Like even outside of InfoSec, I feel like I'm very good at like spite-driven development. Like I'll see a terrible take around the internet and. I've at least learned from XKCD, like, don't 
respond to like silly opinions on the internet, but I will write my own content to try to like put the matter to rest once for all. And that's entirely driven by spite. And I feel like that's true in InfoSec largely as well. Like there's still all these just inefficiencies I can see. I can see like just all these horrible, just twisted incentive paradigms. And I see largely an industry that pats itself on the back for doing very little ultimately as far as outcomes. And that makes me feel very spiteful. So that's part of why I am still in the game. And I do, I generally care about like system safety and user safety. I think there is a better way we can do things. That's part of the reason why I wrote the ebook and why Yarn and I are giving it out for free because we we generally want to make things better. It's really like users don't deserve this. Like they deserve people who are going to prioritize their interests. And right now that just isn't true. So I like to think, you know, whether on the vendor side or whatever comes next, and certainly in my own kind of private research, I'm hoping that I'm able to actually highlight when the status quo is ineffective and guide people towards potentially like a better way to strategize security in a way that's going to help add value to organizations and users better than we've been doing for the past couple decades. That's a fantastic answer and a great close to the show. Kelly Shortridge, thank you so much for coming out, joining us here at the Cyber Ranch. This was a phenomenal conversation. I'm still, uh, I'm going to be replaying and rewinding this one and listening again just to make sure (laughs) I caught all these salient points. Thank you so much for bringing it. And thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>